If you will, stand with me for the reading of the scripture this morning. Habakkuk chapter 2. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death. He has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, to pour out your wrath and make them drunk, in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself. And show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come and ask what we sang earlier, that you would speak, speak to our hearts, teach us these eternal truths, plant them deep in us, God, that your word, the seed of your word would bring forth fruit 30, 60, 100 fold to the praise of your glorious grace for the good of our neighbor and for our own good, God. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's jump right in. we got a lot of ground to cover. What a chapter. Verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So we left off here last week. We actually read and talked a little bit about this verse. And I wanted to show how Habakkuk, whose name means what? Do you remember what his name means? Embrace. How Habakkuk had responded to the back and forth that he and God had had there in chapter 1. 
Uh, but let's jump back right in here today in, in this same verse. After pointing out to God that evil was everywhere that he looked around him there in Judah, uh, Habakkuk wondered aloud how God could just sit idly by and let all this bad stuff happen, even in the midst of his own people. Um, the Jews, the, the southern kingdom of Judah that, that had survived because of God's miraculous intervention when the Assyrians had come down after destroying the northern kingdom um, and the Assyrians never overtook Judah because God protected them. And Habakkuk's looking around going, when are you going to discipline all this evil in the midst of your people? And God replied and said that he has a plan and the plan involves using the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to inflict that discipline that Habakkuk had asked about. To which Habakkuk replied incredulously, What? Basically, that's my translation. He was appealing at that time to God as being from everlasting. He called him his Lord and his God. He called him the Holy One. And he says to God, We, we shall not die, inferring that surely... God would not use the pagan Chaldeans to kill God's people, would he? Would he? Now, keep in mind, he had earlier asked for these Jews to be disciplined, but now compares them to helpless fish, and they were made helpless, he said, by God. You made us helpless. And then he says that the Babylonians, Habakkuk says the Babylonians would draw them out, these Jews, his people, draw them out with hooks and nets and then worship the hooks and the nets, not the God of Judah. Habakkuk had some good solid facts and he's using them logically. But now he's just in a place where he cannot figure out what God is doing, why God is doing it. So, after venting his confusion and frustration, he says... I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So he's finished his thought. He's kind of vented his spleen, so to speak. And he's anticipating a reply from God. And then he anticipates replying to that reply. And I just love this. After some back and forth, after some really high emotion, kind of at a fever pitch, Habakkuk shuts himself down. And he gets alone, and he gets quiet, and he waits. And there is some wisdom here for us. There doesn't seem at any point to be any reproof from God for what has transpired to this point. God's not saying, Habakkuk, you're out of line, or he's not blaming him or shaming him for anything that he said at this point. And so it's clear that Habakkuk, listen, stops himself, shuts himself down, and then trusts God to respond. I will wait for you. I will wait for you. In your word, I will rely. Now, how long passes after this verse? Don't know. We have no indication whatsoever between verse 1 and verse 2 how long it was. Now, let that be a lesson too. Was it overnight? Was it during the watch hours? Was it six years later? We don't know. All we need to know is that he waited and he expected an answer. And he didn't put a timetable on an expected response. I'll be quiet now. I'll be quiet. I'll shut myself down. And he will answer in his time. And then I'll reply to his answer. I'll take my stand. I'll station myself. I'll look for him to speak and see what he says. Oh, for the wisdom and the ability to be quiet and trust God to show himself. Amen. And reveal himself he does. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. 
For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. (laughs) Yeah. So after being quiet and waiting, and again, we don't know how long, we see, and the Lord answered me. So, amen. Because that's an incredible statement right there. I'll wait, Habakkuk says, and then God answers him. Now, we, we say that, we hear that, and we're like, yep, listen, hold on, hold on. God answered him. The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bible. Yahweh, the great I Am, answers this tiny, finite human being. We take that for granted. Because God has put himself out there over and over and over and over to us. But don't pass that by too quick. And the Lord answered me. And what does God say? God starts this answer by telling Habakkuk to write the vision. Write this down. Write down what I'm about to tell you. And actually don't just write it, but... Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Inscribe it in stone. Make this permanent. And make it visible and make it plain so that whoever reads it will have no mistake about what it says. Make it clear. Now there are two different camps here. Some people think that this refers to runners. Messengers who ran from town to town carrying the news, carrying the messages needing conveyed from one community to the others. Like there's some posting place, a post office, (laughs) right? Where messages could be posted so that they could be carried to other places. And that would mean here that the runner wouldn't need to slow down. He could read it as he ran and then carry the plain, clear message to everyone around. So make it so clear, so easy to read, so plain, that a runner running by doesn't even have to slow down. Oh, that's the message. That's one vein of thought, okay? Other commentators say that that wasn't a common practice in Israel, that they didn't have runners, you know, I don't know. And so that it must mean that the plain, clear message would cause the one who reads it to be swift to run, to be swift to obedience and to tell others. Okay. I'm not going to fight about it. Both thoughts are helpful, I think, in communicating that God wants this message to be clear, easily relayable, and to be fully obeyed quickly by all who know about it. That's what's important here. Inscribe it so that the one who reads it may run, whether that's a runner running or somebody who ain't running yet needs to be running in obedience. And then he says that obedience and readiness needs to be in place Even if what is said is not instantly seen, for the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Now he just said wait for it, if it seems slow, it won't delay. That means this message and this call to obey will surely happen. There's no call to do anything to possibly avert what God's about to say. It's coming. And while it may seem that it's taking too long to happen, there is an appointed time at which it will happen. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come and it will not delay. It will come when God intends it to. A vision is never late, Frodo Baggins, nor is it early. It arrives precisely when He means it to. And this vision that is coming is coming because of this key principle that follows in verse 4. This is a major, superimposed Crazy, important verse in this whole book. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So again, very important, not only in this vision or in this book, but in the Bible as a whole. This vision is coming due to the arrogance 
the puffed upness of him, his soul, Babylon. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. This arrogance in the midst of being God's hammer is repugnant to God. Shall the clay say anything to the potter? This arrogance, along with what we'll see in the rest of the passage, is going to bring the destruction of this vision upon Babylon. We can ascertain from this place of promise that being puffed up is a first cause of the coming judgment. It's a main idea. And the coupled principle is the same, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now that probably sounds familiar to most of you that have been in church circles for any good portion of your life. And I think we would, I think if casually, if we heard that, our mindset would be New Testament, right? The righteous shall live by his faith. Well, this is the genesis of it. This is the beginning of that thought. This is the first time that phrase is used in the Bible, and it's in Habakkuk, a little minor prophet. By the way, minor just means smaller in size. There's just not as much writing as the major prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Okay, They're just bigger books, so they're not more important. Minor prophets' messages are as important as the major prophets. There's just less words in them. And this verse, this thought, shows that. This is crazy important. The righteous shall live by his faith. God, in announcing judgment on the nation that he's using to mete out judgment on his people, so God is announcing judgment on Babylon, and he's using Babylon to mete out judgment on Judah... And he makes it clear that the arrogance of the Babylonians offends him. And then says, righteousness is exhibited when one lives by his faith. Arrogance points to self as the key. Look what I've done. Righteousness looks away from self and relies on faith in another, in this case God. And again, this is a core principle of scriptural truth. I cannot be righteous in and of myself. I cannot boast in my accomplishments, in my abilities. I may have abilities. I may have accomplishments. But that's not what I boast in. My righteousness is achieved by looking away to another. By trusting in God, not myself. I cannot be righteous in and of myself. I have to put my faith in God for my righteousness. God had called on Babylon, actually commanded them to do his bidding. And Babylon exalts themselves. God's people are to look away to God for help, deliverance, and their only hope of righteousness. So yeah, write that in stone. Make that a key principle that my people carry with them to other people. Arrogance, puffed upness brings destruction. Self-reliance brings destruction. Looking away from oneself to faith in God brings righteousness. Again, core principle of all the scripture. We could spend a lot of time there, but we're not going to. Verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Now this is a curiously placed statement. The question is, is is this thought with verses 2 and 4? Is it a lead into verses 6 through 20, which... When we get there, we'll see our five woes upon invading Babylon. It's, it's a little hard to say. Um, it seems to be a change in thought after verse 4, but you can see the moreover as a connective word, further describing the puffed up soul. Well, we're just going to take it here by itself, not out of context, but take it by itself one verse And I'm treating it kind of as a transition, a dovetail from verse 4 into the woes of verses 6 to 20. And he addresses, curiously enough here, wine. 
Wine in the Bible is seen as a sign of flourishing and rejoicing. If you're drinking new wine, you're flourishing. You're having a good time. Your heart is light and merry. Wine is not forbidden anywhere in the Bible. But, but, wariness about wine is consistently in place. We'll see more about wine later in verses 15 and 16. But here, wine is said to be a traitor. Be careful with traitors, y'all. Who is being handed over by this traitor here? Is Judah being handed over? Is it Babylon? A case could be made for both. Both are arrogantly defying God, Judah and Babylon, rejoicing in their strength, their plenty, their own pleasure. And God is saying here that a people or a person who is imbibing in these situations is about to be handed over by their wine. The license that comes with, well, I can, or I deserve some pleasure, or look at all that I've accomplished. These are celebrations, right? So many times those celebrations are tied to wine. They're tied to alcohol, carousing, celebration, ease, or entitlement. And we start to see a pattern here with wine that God is showing about the times that Habakkuk is a part of. He's introducing, this is so important, and I'll say it's it's important here in a minute again. He's introducing universal thoughts that pertain to everyone in all times. He gathers for himself, wine does, all nations and collects as his own, all peoples. Now note that. God is calling for caution here. Noting that this temptation was, is, and always will be an issue. All nations, all peoples. And this is a major part of the message that God is delivering to Habakkuk. See, what's going on is Habakkuk is centered and focused on his time. His people. Here and now. And he feels like he's in a unique crisis situation. And God is saying to him, I am the eternal God. I see all of history, all peoples, all nations of all times. And Habakkuk, this is the pattern from beginning to end of time. You're not unique. You're not alone in your situation or your questions or your unclarity. And that's really, really, really big to grasp as we move through this book. We say it and we hear it all the time, don't we? It's worse now than it's ever been. Things couldn't get any worse than they are. Our days are perilous and unprecedented. I mean, my goodness, the Democrats are in control. Woe is us! This is the... Most evil administration I've ever seen in my life. These times are perilous and they are unprecedented. Well, it turns out they're not. Wine's always been a traitor. It's always been an arrogant man, wine has been, who is never at rest. Wine's greed is as wide as Sheol, never having enough. It has always in the past and always will in the future gather for itself and collects as its own all nations and peoples. The point here is not so much wine as it is these are universal principles. Always has been true, always will be true. And it does not diminish God one iota. Please don't miss that. And keep it in mind as we move further through the book. Listen, the same things we complain about have been complained about for 6,000 years now. The things we worry about have been worried about for 6,000 years now. And if the Lord tarries another 6,000 years, guess what? They're still going to be worried about. They're still going to be complained about. And God is sovereign over every single bit of it. Nobody's ever lived your unique 
personal life. Only you. But you live in the midst of a situation that has always been true. After sin entered into the human race, these things have been... We can go back to Noah and see wine being a problem, right? And I'm guessing it was a problem before then that we just don't see it in Scripture before then. God is saying, listen, you can only see right here, right now. And you think this is the worst thing ever. I've seen it from eternity past. When I created time, I saw it. And none of this has caught me by surprise. None of this is unique. This is the way of fallen mankind. I can't emphasize this enough in this book. Universal principles for all time. Please don't miss that. So now as we move into 6 to 8. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence to the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. So this section begins a series of five woes that Habakkuk, from this vision from God, pronounces on Babylon. So the he, uh, because you, he, those are pointed at Babylon. Okay, Decrying the actions of these coming invaders. Now, (laughs) this is crazy because God's saying, well, they're going to come and they're going to invade... And then after they invade, these are the woes that are going to fall on them. So God's like steps ahead of Habakkuk, obviously. He's eternal, and Habakkuk's right here right now. Okay? So he's like, they're going to invade, they're going to take you over, and then this is what's going to happen to them after all that. After being instruments of God's wrath, Babylon will be the recipients of God's wrath. And this first woe is for the constant tendency of the Babylonians to take what is not theirs. They heap up what is not their own. They take the spoil. They plunder. Shall not all these, all the nations, take up their taunt against him, him Babylon, with scoffing and riddles for him, for Babylon? It's a picture of making fun of someone and the taunt pointed toward Babylon by the nations is a woe. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Woe is coming for the actions of taking things from other people. For how long, he says, insinuating a limited time for Babylon. And he loads himself with pledges. Pledges were monies extracted from people to keep Babylon from attacking them. Like a bully on a playground taking milk money or lunch money from a kid or threatening to beat them up. Give me your milk money or I'm going to beat you up. Kids still have milk money in school? No? Well, back in the day, when we walked to school barefooted in snow both ways, uphill or something like that, we had money for a milk break, which we thought was really cool. Warm milk, yeah, that was in cartons that you couldn't get open. And I've got my 25 cents here if I can... Oh, the bully took it. I forgot I gave it to him. I I was never bullied. I was... No, no. I was a human football is what I was. Wow, we got off track there. Mm. So, yeah, like a, like a playground bully taking money from a kid so that he won't beat him up. That's, that's, that's what pledges were about, okay? And what will happen, he says, will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. What went around has come back around for Babylon, or will. What Babylon did, God did to them. That's the point here. Babylon's things and stuff will be taken from them because they had plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you, Babylon, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Your cruelty returns to you, Babylon. And all you took and more will be taken from you. That's the first woe. You take things from other people that aren't yours, woe to you. Second woe, verses 9 to 11. 
Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. This woe is crying out against Babylon's pattern of evil gain, leading to a false sense of security. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. And from this gain, they set their nest on high, exalting themselves, supposedly for security and longevity, to be safe from the reach of harm. But the shame devised by and for the house of Babylon, which led to many peoples being cut off, leads to them forfeiting their lives. For the stone will cry out from the wall in this thing that you've built, and the beam from the woodwork in this supposedly secure house will cry out for violence, for the violence that led to its building. And that same violence is going to come back on you. That's the second woe. Third woe, verses 12 to 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So this one's pretty easy, right? Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Listen to me. America, Americans, God hates the shedding of innocent blood. And He calls for the shedding of blood in return for blood being shed. We are a nation, a society, a culture that is steeped in violence. Whether it's a video game, or a movie, or a TV show, or down the block somewhere, down some back alley, or right out in the open, blood is being spilled, and blood is being spilled, and blood is being spilled, and God hates it. Genesis 9, 5-6 tells us why I don't have this up there. Let me read this. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. You're like, well, that's Old Testament. You're absolutely right, it's Old Testament. Blood for blood. That doesn't seem very nice, uh, It's not very nice. For God made man in his own image. Listen. To shed the blood of man is to attack the very image of God. And I don't care what color that person's skin is. To shed their blood is an attack on the image of God. And Babylon has built his city with blood and has founded his cities on iniquity or sin. So woe is coming for that from God. God reminds Habakkuk and he reminds Babylon and us that he, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, the God that led the charge against Nineveh back at Nahum, he is the one who causes peoples to labor merely for fire. Which means they got nothing. They're working their fingers to the bone for nothing. And God's causing that to happen. What used to be worth something ain't worth nothing anymore. Wake up, people. It's God that does this. To cause peoples to labor merely for fire. And it's God who causes nations to weary themselves for nothing. God sets those gears in motion and overrides the plans and schemes of man, working all things according to the counsel of His will and His purposes. And that will and those purposes will lead to His glory. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a sentence. 
Lots to ponder there. Listen, this is the end game. This is the reason for all things. And it will happen. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Everything, everyone will be fully cognizant, understanding that the Lord God Almighty is glorious. Whether in heaven or in hell. Everyone will know this. As the waters cover the sea. That's pretty complete, right? God himself is going to reign for all eternity on the earth with his people and everyone, everyone will have full knowledge of the fullness of his glory. No debating. No contests. That's going to happen. He has spoken it and it is therefore sure. While you're building your town with blood, God's going to tear it down and establish his kingdom and you're going to know that God is righteous and God is glorious and God is God. That's a universal principle. Fourth woe, 15 to 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Speaking of glory, drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. You see the juxtaposition of God's glory to the glory of man? It's exactly what he's saying here. And he starts with this wine stuff again. Let me go back there because I think it's good to see that. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. So we got wine and nudity here. (laughs) The woe is pronounced here because of the use of alcohol to get people drunk in order to take advantage of them sexually. And obviously, God patently condemns that practice. The pronouncement says that this, Babylon doing this, will lead to shame for the Babylonians with them being exposed in their drunkenness. Show your uncircumcision. Show me physically by your flesh that you're not God's people. In your drunkenness, you'll be exposed. God's smart, y'all. The imagery continues... When Habakkuk records that the cup in the Lord's right hand, which we could call the cup of wrath, which we see all through the scriptures, including the last days in the book of Revelation, that cup in God's right hand, that cup of wrath, will come around to the Babylonians. And they will drink the cup of God's wrath to the dregs, as will all who are disobedient to the Lord's purposes. All the arrogant, all the puffed up, But here specifically he's talking to Babylon. And they will drink the cup of God's wrath to the dregs and utter shame will come upon their glory. Look at us. Look how awesome we are. Hiccup, pass out, drunk, naked. Now you're exposed. And that last verse in this woe is a condemnation of the violence of the Babylonians which spread to man, beast, and the earth itself. God, listen, God does not let a single wrong go unpunished. All the violence is condemnable. And I think connection, uh, the connection in the woe to alcohol seems to suggest that the violence is amplified by the alcohol as well. Your drunk violence is worse than your regular violence. And so woe upon that. And finally the fifth woe, verses 18 to 20. What profit is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? 
Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath in it, and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So what's this woe for? This was this is an easy one, right? Idolatry. God hates idolatry. Thou shalt not have any gods before me. Thou shalt not make a graven image of anything. This fifth and last woe is pronounced for Babylon's idolatry. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. Now it sounds ludicrous to us to worship a statue, something that you make. But sin warps all of us and makes us love and worship the works of our own hands. And anything that comes before God in your affection, in your attention, is an idol. And I promise you this morning, you have idols. As do I. And God hates it. God asks, what prophet is an idol? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. God understands the tendencies that we have, but he says it's foolish. And he points out that the idol can't even talk. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? God asks. Yeah, it's covered with gold or silver, which is valuable, but there's no breath in it. It's not alive. Who gives breath? Only God. God gives breath, not man. God deserves worship, not man, nor an idol. And the Lord, the maker of all things, is in His holy temple. Let all the earth, like a dumb, mute idol, keep silence before Him. Worship Him in awed silence. A-W-E-D. Awed silence. Don't worship the silence of a lifeless idol. Worship the true God in incredible, amazed silence. I got no words. Wow. Because the Lord is in His holy temple. And it is glorious to behold. That's a universal principle too. Woe to those who worship idols. And that's the end of the chapter. Not much resolution here. All right, I'm going to answer you. Here's the vision. Write it down. Whoa, 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 whoa. In a chapter. But it's a good one. So we're going to apply. And I hope it's not arrogant, but I'm so incredibly proud of these application points. I present to you three Z's. Oh, Lordy, I just messed up. I just hit the wrong. Can we go to the application points? I hit the wrong button. Oh, yeah, it's past all that. See, see, I messed up there. Oh, yeah, that's a good word. Three, three applications, three Zs. The first is Zs. It's five Zs if you're taking notes, if you're writing these down. There's five Zs there. There will be throughout the application point. We'll call the application point Z's. Z's. The second is Zeitgeist. I'll get to that, trust me. And the last one is Zeal. Z's, Zeitgeist, and Zeal. There may never be three Z application points again. So inscribe this in stone. <laughs> yeah, so everybody can see the Z's. First application point is Z's. Again, five of them. It's not really important, but... To be consistent, it's five. Or you can put Z-S, Z's. What does this application point entail? We have to learn how to be quiet. How to wait. How to trust. Which means 
rest. I will wait for you. I will wait for you through the calm and through the storm. I will wait for you, surely wait for you, till my soul is satisfied. You cannot wait if you cannot rest. You cannot trust if you cannot rest. And what we saw from 2-1 was Habakkuk finally shut himself down. I'm going to wait until he answers me. Because I trust that he's going to. God did not lead me into the dark to leave me in the dark. He's going to show up and he's going to shed light on this. And the old, what's uh, farther along, we'll know more about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brothers. Walk in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. Everything that we need to understand, we will ultimately understand. But we've got to wait. And while we wait, we rest. Andrew will help you with that next week, I believe. In his commentary, K.L. Barker quotes another commentator by the name of Actemeyer, which is a great name. The quote says, Prophets have no independent wisdom of their own. They are dependent on the Word of God, as we too are dependent for a true understanding of what God is doing and must ever search the Word now given us in the Scriptures. You're not going to concoct some clever answer to all of these questions, all of these doubts, all these fears. You're not going to reach a point where you're like, okay, all that's gone. Each individual situation, each individual circumstance pushes us back to the Word of God. And we trust that it is sufficient to help us wait and to help us understand our place in what God is doing in this moment. And we don't, we don't have cleverly devised schemes of our own. We trust in God to show us and to tell us through His Word what all this is about. So here's this application... Take your doubts, take your fears, take your questions to God. Don't make your doubts, your fears, and your questions about God without addressing Him. Well, He doesn't like when people complain to Him. Read the Psalms, people. About 87% of the book is the psalmist going, Where are you? What are you doing? Why are you doing it this way? And God put it right in the middle of your Bible so you could turn to it and say, Yes, this! And he's not standing up there with a lightning bolt going, Oh, don't you bring that junk to me. He says, Come and find your rest in me while you wait for my answer. God also tells Habakkuk that if the vision tarries, don't think it's not going to happen. So maybe God has said something's going to happen and don't personalize that. God told me that this is going to happen in my life because He didn't. God gave principles, truths about Himself, about our situations that apply to our situations, but God did not say to you, I'm guaranteeing you, you can do this because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That's not what that means. In the context of God's Word, find out who God is. And if God said that all things are going to work together for our good, wait for that. Don't over-personalize the Scriptures trying to fulfill a promise of God or trying to make God fulfill a promise that you've made for yourself. Instead, wait for Him to do what He has said He's going to do. We try to make it happen. We try to twist God's arm. Well, you said this. Well, I did say that and that's not what that meant. Look and see what God has said And know for certain that you can wait for that to come true regardless of how long it takes. Wait for the vision. 
Don't worry if it's going to happen. It's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. He who began a good work in you will perfect it. You're not going to be perfect tomorrow, but at the day of Christ Jesus. Well, he's not answering my prayers. Oh, he is. Wait for his timing, his purposes, his plan, his power to be shown in your situation. Here's where I misplaced this scripture. I'm, usually I have a couple of scriptures per application point. I've just got one long one for this one. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they, the scoffers, deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening? The coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Habakkuk is saying, God, unrighteousness reigns everywhere. Peter's saying, we're waiting for a new Kingdom, a new heavens, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Until that happens, learn to rest in the goodness, truth, power, person of God Himself. He's not slow. He's not slack concerning His promises. So as you wait through the flood, through the fire, rest in Him. Application point one, Z. Now, zeitgeist. So let me make this word clear. Zeitgeist is defined by Merriam-Webster Dictionary as, quote, the general intellectual, moral, and cultural climate of an era. In an explanatory note, Webster says this, Scholars have long maintained that in each era, that each era has a unique spirit, a nature or climate that sets it apart from all other epochs. In German... Such a spirit is known as Zeitgeist. From the German words Zeit, meaning time, and Geist, meaning Gust, or spirit. Oxford Dictionary says this, The defining spirit or mood of a particular period of history as shown by the ideas and beliefs of the time. So we can say the 50s had a Zeitgeist that is different than the 2020s, right? How, how many people long for the purity and goodness of the 50s and the leave it to beaver age, right? So each era has a zeitgeist, a spirit, an, over, an overarching tone that basically describes that era. You with me? If you're with me, say zeitgeist. zeitgeist. Bam! Look at that. Now say, Brother Jason's preaching real good right now. Don't, don't, don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> Well, here's the application point for zeitgeist. Listen to me. All of history, from beginning to end, is God's story. And God is the spirit that defines all of history. The zeitgeist of let there be to even so come Lord Jesus 
is pervaded by the person and work of God Himself. Those universal principles we talked about earlier have always been true and they always will be true. So when we look at these woes that are pronounced upon Babylon, and there were five of them, right? Taking things that aren't your own. Evil gain, blood guilt, wine with sex, idolatry. You know what? If God hated them in Habakkuk's time, guess what he hates today? The same things. And if God promised deliverance and judgment from those things in Habakkuk's day, guess what he promises today? Deliverance and judgment for those things. Here's the good news. The woes are universal. God will always punish every evil thing. You say, what about us? I'll get there. Evil is punished. And the disciplined people of God who aren't punished because Jesus took our punishment, get grace after He disciplines us. Those are universal principles. So what we're going to see when we get into chapter 3 is that God has a plan for Judah beyond this discipline that He's bringing with the Babylonians. So the universal principle is, I will judge those who are guilty, I will punish the evil, and I will give grace to my people after I discipline those. And that was true in Habakkuk's time, and it's true today. It was true in Adam and Eve's time. It'll be true whenever Jesus splits the skies and comes back to establish His kingdom on the earth. The whole point of this book is that what has been will always be. And God is sovereign over every single bit of it. God establishes the zeitgeist of history. Right is right, wrong is wrong, just like it has been all along, Stephen Curtis Chapman says. And here's the good news and the application point here. The consistency of God, the fact that God hates evil, punishes sins, and gives grace to His people, and has always been and will always be about the task of glorifying Himself. And that is great news. Hasn't changed, will not change. God's definitions don't change. In an age and a day when we're changing the definition of everything, God says no. God's commands do not change. God's purposes do not change. And they will never change. And that's super good news for His people. And it's super bad news for those who are not His. Malachi 3.6 Too many verses. For I the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now they could have been consumed. Babylon was coming in and they're going to be viciously cruel to the Jews. And they're going to march them off with hooks in their noses and in their nipples and in their buttocks. And they're going to burn Jerusalem to the ground. Viciously. And God says, since I don't change, therefore you're not going to be consumed. Listen church, God doesn't change, so we're not going to be consumed. We're worried about the church today, aren't we? You should be. Ish. But since God is God and He doesn't change, the church is not going to be consumed. Psalm 90 verses 1 to 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And he establishes the zeitgeist of all of history. And that's really good news to rejoice. Remember that when it seems like everything's out of control and we're doomed. We're not doomed. Nor will we ever be. Z, zeitgeist, and finally zeal. Zeal is great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. What is the great zeal that we are to be zealous about? It's faith. Faith. 
Faith is what we are to be zealous about, what we are working to build up, what we are to strengthen, what we are to grow, what we are to walk in. The righteous man shall live by his faith. Anybody ever waver in their faith a little? Pursue your faith. Strengthen your faith. Build up your faith as the most precious thing that you can pursue. Be zealous about your faith. Three times in the New Testament, that verse that we quoted, verse 4, where the righteous man shall live by his faith. Three times in the New Testament that's mentioned. Romans 1.17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. In Hebrews 10.38, But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in it. How are you to live? By faith. And faith is kind of a nebulous term, right? And this is the command of 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. So we're always of good courage. For we know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We're of good courage and we know these things because we walk by faith. Faith faith in what? Faith that we know that God has said the glory of the Lord will cover the whole earth just like the waters cover the sea. Faith in the person and work of God. Faith that we can wait for Him and His timing. Faith that the constant themes of God's working pervaded and will pervade all of history and faith that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Faith in the person and the being of God. Not in a principle. Not in a hope or a dream that we had once or a promise maybe that we latched onto because we liked it. But faith in the finished work of of Christ to save his people and to secure a future for them that nothing can separate us from. Pursue that faith, church. How do we do that? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You're like, you're going to tell me to read my Bible, aren't you? Yes, I am. You want to increase your faith? Open your Bible. You want to strengthen your faith? Open your Bible. You want to encourage yourself in times of doubt, fear, anxiety? Open your Bible. And walk in faith in the sure words of a sure God. By grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Christ alone as revealed in the Bible alone to the glory of God alone. And the same gospel that you put your faith in when you were born again is the same gospel that sustained you in the midst of the trial and will sustain you until he makes you perfect and complete in Christ. And that gospel tells you to look away from yourself. Actually, it tells you to look at yourself first, to see your sin, then to look away from yourself to the finished work of Christ that you might receive by faith the grace that he has given through that finished work and receive remission and forgiveness for your sins in order that you might be made to be just like Jesus. By His grace, through the faith that was given as a gift to us, that we exhibit toward Him and trust in. Resting in Him. Trusting Him to do what only He can and will do with our faith zealously secured by searching the Scriptures and encouraging each other by the very words of God. I will wait for you. I will wait for you. For your love is my delight. May it be true of all of us, saved, and may it become true of all those who are not saved today, looking to him and placing your faith in him to do what you can't do yourself. Let's pray. Father, your good and your plan is perfect. And through the night, through the dark, through the storm, through the fire, through the flood, you are unchanging. Help us to find our rest in you. 
Help us to know that your ways and these principles are universal. So we place our faith firmly in you. Do this by the power of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? A short one, but a good one. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but stay neat with us if you can.